This is The Braither Point. No matter where you live, no matter how long you've been there, someone else came there first. Before you, to the place where you play, live, and sleep soundly. But they did not play, they patrolled. They did not sleep, they stood watch. And often in doing their duty, they did not live to complete it. They paid the price in blood for you so that you could play, live, and sleep there. No matter what you believe or don't, This is the hard, irrefutable truth. It has always been thus and will always be. Someone first must secure the ground, hold the line, make it safe for all the others. Now, where there are many and it is safe, there were few and it was dangerous. Down through the ages, this one changeless fact remains. First came the warrior. Conceived in rape, orphaned and adopted, claimed by Christians, initiated by indigenous, tribally trained, martial arts mastered, psyops and special forces served, decades of duty in DEA and DIA, intelligence inducted, deep state betrayed, Yeshua saved, dedicated to Republic rescue, American exceptionalism restoration, and redemption by God's grace. I'm Jeff Prather, and this is the Prather Point. Welcome, everybody. If you haven't yet, please go to jeffreyprather.com and subscribe for my free newsletter, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-P-R-A-T-H-E-R.com. For a deeper dive, you can go to patreon.com slash jeffreyprather for my $5 content for my curated news stories, uh, $15 transcripts, or $25 training videos, patreon.com slash jeffreyprather, or go to jeffreyprather.locals.com, sign up for free, uh, or I also have a in-between deal there of uh, $9 a month uh, as well. Uh, and uh, so uh, please get your uh, praythroughprepsupply.com food supplies because we are under a siege warfare. Uh, they're destroying the food plants uh, and they're crispering the crops, done shows on that. And uh, to stay in contact, get your sat phone at praythroughdeal.com as well. The only reliable way I've ever been able to make uh, comms is uh, SATCOM. So SAT phones are the next best way to go. So uh, after the warrior came the militia. After the militia came the army. After the army came America. And after America came the flag. After the fall of our republic and the failure of our army, so returns the warrior. And today is the anniversary birthday of the Army, started in 1775 uh, after initial engagements uh, in April and May. And a couple of years after that, in 1777, was uh, Flag Day because the different uh, militias and groups were fighting under different flags. So it's a very auspicious day today, uh, Army birthday. And of course, I'm an Army soldier veteran and very proud uh, of it with the senior service. And there's only uh, half a percent of Americans that serve uh, in the U.S. military. So by my recollection, we are all uh, elite. Uh, And then Flag Day, of course, is very important. This is a real Pride Day as opposed to the uh, phony Pride and tranny days that they are trying to foist on us uh, as well. And uh, oh, somebody's already telling me, I guess it's President Trump's birthday. Well, that's cool to hear uh, as well. 
So uh, I have a very special guest and a lot of show today. The title of the show is Why We Will Win. And I will explain all of that. Got a lot to cover. Uh, but first, I want to um, bring on my very special guest. But I want to show a little clip here. Um, I was guesting on a uh, podcast the other day. Uh, and we were talking about uh, heroes, uh, military heroes. I'm not a hero, but I know some heroes. You know, I've had on um, Ed Morales to hear the FBI gunfight. Uh, and uh, I was talking to this uh, Tommy, this young guy, and he says, well, you, mu you must have had on Chad Balwan's bulldog from ODA 525. He goes, no, I haven't. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I realized that I, I had, had tried to have him on before but hadn't. So uh, this is um, – very uh, important guest here, but I'm going to play the, just the beginning of this to show you. Was soon attacked by 150 soldiers. They killed 40, but the attacks kept coming. Doctor Weber feeling And uh, that is uh, Chad Ball once uh, handle Bulldog. Uh, I think he was a Chief Warrant Officer three at that time, and he is on the uh, line with me. So uh, welcome, Chad. So glad to uh, have you on the show. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be on with you. And uh, before we got on, I had my uh, I, my wife and my kids were asking me who I was going to have on. I'm like, I'm going to have Chad. You mean, you mean Chad? <laughs> the guy who wouldn't shoot the little girls and little boys and uh, and fought it out? I'm like, yeah. They're like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, would you, would you like to say hello? So they were, they were uh, pretty awestruck, starstruck, as they should be. Uh, and um, then my wife was actually crying before the show uh, talking. So, but I will let you set the stage and uh, tell the tale because this is way before Lone Survivor. Uh, and this is truly a humble hero um, and, a t and a story not really known outside of uh, special forces uh, circles as it should be. Um, uh, but uh but, Jed, I will give you the floor. Thanks, Jeff. The, uh, the, the story I want to talk to today is, is actually about a mission uh, that went on during Desert Storm. Um, I was a warrant officer, actually had, had came out of the warrant officer course in the 5th Special Forces Group in 1985. And so, and I had been on a military freefall team up until the time that we deployed into Operation Desert Storm, and uh, so this was about in January of uh, 1991, and um, maybe a little bit before that, the, um, I was with actually on the freefall team, and there was another team that was there, a team from our company, B Company, 1st Battalion of the Special Forces, ODA 525, which was our scuba detachment Unfortunately for them, as we deployed into uh, Saudi Arabia to prepare for Operation Desert Storm, their, uh, their team commander, a guy named Jim Linder, who was a captain at that time and, and went on to become, I believe, a three-star general, he had, he had to leave the team as he is going for uh, selection tryouts with one of our Tier 1 units. So he departed the team, and uh, so they were left without an officer on the team. So as we got into Saudi Arabia, I was with my other team, 524, which was the freefall team. We deployed up to the border area between uh, between the, the Saudi Arabia and, and actually Kuwait. And then the Saddam's army was in Kuwait. 
wait at that time. So we've set up eyes up on the border, basically a tripwire in case the dog wanted to come on across the border. And during that time, several things have happened. Our battalion commander, Lieutenant uh, uh, Colonel Jerry Thompson, he came up to the outpost I was at. And he asked me because I was at that time I was an assistant detachment commander. We had a captain on the team and a full team. He came up and asked me if I would go back to uh, to the rear to an area we called the Bat Cave, which was a king, uh, uh, which as a king fought, it was a military a new airport that was under construction at Daharad. And uh, the, the fifth group, the first kind of the fifth group, and the fifth group headquarters was down at the, basically the bowels or the bottom of this airport under construction. We referred to it as the Bat Cave. And he asked me if I'd go back and if I would take command of ODA 525 because they were the only team out of the group that didn't have an officer on it. So they, at that time, they were not deplorable because they didn't have an officer on the team. So I, I, was, I welcomed that because I, I knew the guys on 525. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do something a little more than, you know, just being up along the border there. So I used that opportunity. I told the battalion commander that I would enjoy going and take it over 525, but that if I was to have any credibility with the new team I was going to, that he would have to, you know, give me some of the first missions to come down so that we would receive with a mission in Desert Storm, to which Colonel Thompson agreed to. So I took over 525 and we prepared for a special reconnaissance mission that we was going to go deep into Iraq and provide eyes on a major highway that came north to south. It was about halfway between Amnasaria and Baghdad on Highway 7. So we ended up with that mission. We trained for that mission. That mission was going to require us to build hide sites. And so as I was one of eight people on this team. So we really worked hard. We went out and we learned how to construct hide sites. We dug them out in the desert. We built sandbags. We rehearsed intensively for this mission into Iraq. As we prepared for it, finally on the 23rd of February, 1991, one day before the start of the ground offensive, my team deployed into Iraq. We was going in on two UH-60 Black Hawk Special Operations helicopters flown by the Task Force 160, the premier helicopter unit in the United States Army. My team was ready. To, we had four guys on either helicopter. We deployed up to a place called Rafa. It was up along the border to where it was a refueling site. We refueled the helicopters. The team was uh, was prepared to go in, loaded up on the helicopters. And uh, before we left, the chaplain came up and the chaplain prayed for us. Uh, and it was it was consoling to me that the chaplain came and he prayed for the safety of my team and for the success of our mission. As we departed, we, we left about nightfall because we wanted to go. We wanted to be able to travel on the cover of darkness. There was no fighter escorts. There was just two Black Hawk helicopters. Each did have door gunners with, with uh, chain guns on them, uh, 7.62 uh, uh, Gatling guns on the sides of the, that, you know, for armament. The, uh, the pilots wanted to stay low. They wanted to keep down out of sight. We had about 140 miles to go inside of our rack to reach a destination to where you could set up uh, hide sites and put eyes on Highway 7 so we could inform the commander.
commander of the 18th Airborne Corps and the Special Operations Cell within the 18th Airborne Corps, what the enemy was doing. Were they coming, were they traveling north or south out Highway 7? What kind of units were they? They, uh, the, the units in Iraq, they have what we call signature items of equipment. So if you've seen a specific item of equipment, you, you would be able to tell that that item of equipment is associated with a certain unit, perhaps the Republican Guards, perhaps their, you know, their, their, their tank units, their armored units. Um, so with, at that night when we was flying into Iraq, our, um, you know, our blood was pumping. The eight guys on the team, we've worked close together. We've become very close over, over the last, uh, you know, the several weeks or so that we had together uh, uh, preparing for this mission. Four of us was on the lead cop chopper, four on the back chopper, the, the rear chopper. We was going in, flying very low. I was on a headset so I could talk to the uh, to the, the commander, the pilot commander, the chief warrant officer, Kenny Collier. Very experienced helicopter pilot, one from the Vietnam era. So on the way in, we were flying low, and he had on his uh, his display board. He could tell if he was getting bit up by radar, if there was anti-aircraft units that was you know uh, fixating on him. And at one point, you know, it lit up. We got sprayed by radar. He had dodged left, right, went up and down, tried to avoid stuff. We never got fired upon. He assumed that they were, they didn't want to fire on anything because, you know, they were afraid of a counterattack. But we really don't know. But he decided to get a little lower, flying low. At one point, we came across, we was probably 10 to 15 feet flying just right off of the, uh, uh, off the desert floor. I felt a thud. And, you know, I don't know if we'd been fired at, we got hit. So I asked, can he call your hey, What was that? very calm about it. He said, oh, he said, don't worry about it. He said, we just, uh, we fly too low. We, we hit a sand dune. He said, I'm sure the shock absorber off the, the land is going to rear. Well, he's not excited about it, but I'm telling you, know, I'm not going to get excited about it. And then as we continued on, there was a, there was a lot of things about this mission that was a surprise to us that they shouldn't have been. At that time, the intel wasn't as good as it should have been. You know, for example, they never told uh, Kenny Collier about power lines running, you know, uh, east to west across our flight going in. So as he started approaching these, he had to make a decision very quick. Do I go under or do I go over? He knew if he went under, he had to stay close to the tower because the tower, that's where the wires were the highest. If he was going to go over, he'd go in, over in the center of these uh, the span of wires because that's where it's at its lowest. So he made the last minute decision. He said he's going to go over. He grabbed his collective. He popped up. He went over top of the wire and set back down. The rear rear chopper, uh, the guy named Tom Montgomery, he decided he would go under. So he they, he went underneath the wires of the of the uh, power lines closer to the tower, and we survived that maneuver and, and continued on. It was later we was coming across the swampy area, which was described to me by Collier, and he said he wasn't expecting that. And a flock of ducks took off. And they flew up. And the, the engine, the right engine on the chopper, we was in it sucked the duck into, into the engine. And it ground it up and, it, you know, it basically overheated it. So he had to shut that engine off, and we completed the mission in, in the uh, infiltration mission with one engine on the, uh, on the helicopter. We got 
action. We looked at some of the terrain on it, and you know, we determined that uh, that the terrain was uh, flat, and we could, you know, we could come in, uh, we could come in low, coming in. And uh, Kenny Collier decided that as he was taking us into that area, that he would do what he called false assertions, that he would come up in the air so that he would intentionally get picked up on the radar and then come down close to just a few feet off the ground and center for a little bit as if somebody is getting on or off the helicopter to throw off the enemy forces as to what our intentions were. Kenny Collier made two false assertions. And on the third trip, the third one he went down, the, uh, the helicopters came down just a few feet, four guys off the lead chopper, four guys off the trail chopper, and away the chopper went to nightfall. And you could hear the chopper blades as they whipped, going out, going out of sight, and it was a real eerie feeling that came over me, because I realized that I was at least 140 miles inside of Iraq. We had no artillery support, we had no units on call, we were by ourselves. And as the helicopters flew off, there were dogs working. That was another intel issue. We asked about dogs. They said, well, the Arabs don't have dogs. You don't have to worry about that. But the dogs were barking as the helicopters were flying off. And later we found that they were barking because of the sound of the rotors of the helicopter and not our presence. Because when the helicopters got out of sight, the dogs were barking. And they, they calmed down. So as the helicopters moved out, the team was on the ground. We moved a short distance off. We had our rucksacks loaded off, dropped down. And what, what you do is when you come into that environment, you just sit for maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you just take in the night sounds, the sights. You let your body and your senses adjust to this environment that you were just thrust into. And at the same time, our team members were determining our, our, uh, our location. We had a new system at that time, a GPS, which everybody uses today, but at that time it was about the size of a lunchbox. You either had to have, you know, numerous satellites coming over at the same time where you could pick up and triangulate. So there was times when it was very accurate if you had the satellite coverage. If you didn't have the satellite coverage, it wasn't quite as accurate. So if we're taking it, the night sounds and we're trying to determine where we're at on the ground, we went through that. It was a particularly
pick up this cache of, uh, of a, some radio equipment, uh, and uh, perhaps some chow was put in there. And uh, so the team sergeant and uh, my uh, medic, they moved off to put that cache in. And my point man, Sergeant Jimbo Hoverball, and myself, we moved off to do a recall. We took our rucksacks off and left them with the guys. We went off to recall in the area where our hindsight was going to be put in. So we moved out. It took us a while because of uh, you know going through these ditches and coming out. So finally, we, we found the area we was looking for. We determined where we were going to put our hindsights in. So we went back to link up with the team. By the time we got back, the cache had been put in. We moved out, but it was getting late. We determined it was going to take us at least six hours of, of digging, and this was from our rehearsals in Saudi Arabia, to put in this hide site. So we moved, we got to the area, and I needless to say, we, we'd been up, and by this time it's about 2.30 in the morning. So we're behind time. Um, so we start to dig in our hide sites, and we're not going to be able, we discovered quickly that the soil that we're digging inside of Iraq was vastly different from what was in Saudi Arabia. It was more like being in a farmer's field. It was heavier soil. It took a lot more to dig. It was damp. Uh, we determined we was not going to be able to put in the hindsight to rehearse for. So we were digging in a hasty hindsight into the side of one of the irrigation ditches. Uh, the team sergeant uh, Charlie Hopkins, he moved off with three other team members, and so we had four people. We were digging two hindsights, and they moved a little bit further off from us, a hundred meters or so, and digging in their hindsight, we're putting in ours, and we got it. We got it dug, and uh, you know we're putting up uh, the, the uh, irrigation ditch we did, and we're stacking dirt in the front of the irrigation ditch to build it up. Uh, you know we're putting the top on it. Finally, we got it. We, able to get inside of it. We had it covered up. We had went out and got vegetation and put on top of it to conceal the position and finally crawled inside the hindsight. We were feeling relatively secure as the sun started to come up. But as the sun came up, the, the two guys that were looking out at what we had a portal that was oriented towards Highway 7 was looking at that portal and they began to get very concerned because we thought we was going into an isolated area, that we was away from everything, we were going to be out in this field where nobody came, and that we'd be able to watch Highway 7 and do the job we sent to do. Well, we quickly realized there was a, a, a village across Highway 7 that never showed up on any of our, our maps or any of our recons or told to us by Intel. A lot of people were coming out at first light, coming out out of the villages, they were moving and they were coming out, basically coming out to these fields. There were women coming out and they were picking up, uh, they were picking up wood to build fires with, I guess, to, you know, to cook, make some chai on, make some tea on. Uh, they were moving throughout the field, some of the bedrooms were there. They also had a, a, a picket line of people that came out of the village that was standing along the highway, they was lined up in the kind of looking at the sky, you know, we felt that they were like uh, observing, you know, for air, air, aircraft to come in where they could report to the, uh, to the air defense artillery units. So all of a sudden our security, you know, feeling got a little uneasy. Uh, four guys in the hindsight, we were, we were exhausted. I curled up in the back of the hindsight 
and actually nodded off for a bit. I was exhausted, as were the other team members. But we was we was established. We had uh, some communications established with people high sight with the small handheld radio. We got in in there by first light. Now we've seen all these people coming out to the fields, and then at one point they were moving closer. We could hear uh, footsteps, light footsteps coming, and looked out of this high sight, and all of a sudden there was Iraqi children following, and a girl, probably eight maybe 10 years old, and another younger girl, younger than her, and they had a small toddler with them. And they were looking directly into the hindsight at these four guys that sit there for their camouflage faces, you know, with guns. And they just, just kind of froze two of my guys. And, and let me stop you there, Chad, for just one second, please. <laughs> so this, I have told this legendary story, uh, a thousand times to okay. a thousand of my students, whether they were military PJs uh, or chaplaincy or initiation students. And then I've always asked them, hey, so what would you do? And I go around the room and say, well, what would you do? And a lot of the moms have even said, well, we shoot the little girls because we got to keep our team safe. Um, and uh, I just we just asked it this year again uh, when we were teaching initiation. So, But I want you to hear Chad's answer and Chad's decision. Uh, and there were also Iraqi troops nearby, right? There was an armed Iraqi uh, unit there. There, was, there, were, there were some troops that were nearby, but at this point it was early. These were just, you know, these were just the, uh, the village people. Uh, we hadn't ran into any of the, you know, the Iraqi military at this point. It was just the Bedouins and the, the village people. But, the, but there was a military unit nearby. So we're in the hindsight, we look out, we see the, the Sergeant DeGroff and Sergeant Kostrevsky, they come out the rear of the hindsight that we had left left open. They had a silenced 5mm pistol and a silenced MP5 that we had taken specifically for this. We had, we had rehearsed this. We had talked about what would happen if we gave up on civilians, what we would do. And they, we come to one of the plans was, oh, we would grab them, We'd pull them into the hindsight, and then we would we would uh, you know bind them up and, and drug them to put them out you know so that we could continue on with our mission or get you know or get away. But that wasn't going to happen. What went through my mind when those those girls were looking, and this this only took a matter of a few seconds, but it, it seemed like an eternity because there was a lot of thought processing going on. As the graphic construction came out, they lowered their weapons at the kids and they're calling out to me. Chief, Bulldog, what do we do? Do we shoot? Do we shoot? So through my mind, I'm running, oh my goodness, if we if we shoot them, we're gonna make some, you know, although they're silenced weapons, you know, we're gonna to have to drag these kids, we're gonna to have to bury them, and they're not gonna be going that long. Somebody's gonna come and look for them. And also with the back of my mind. I had a daughter about that same age at that time, and I kept thinking about my own daughter. And then uh, Sergeant Weatherford, he was, he was another man, he was our comm sergeant, he was there. And he was kind of under his voice, he was imploring me, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. And, uh, but I had made up a decision. I had made up my mind what we were going to do. And I said, we're not going to shoot these children. And they ran off back to the village. That was a decision I made, knowing full well that these kids could run back into the village. That the, the 
the townspeople, get the military, and they would be out there looking for us. And could really put us in a lot of a lot of danger. But it was it was a it was a moral decision. It was it was an ethical decision that was that was made. I wasn't going to shoot children because that would have been something that uh, you know would, would have to live with the rest of my life. Although it may have been short <laughs> short lived life. Uh, the, the children went off. They went back into the town. Uh, ran across the highway seven to the village. Teams rallied. We got together. We came out of our hindsights. I got up with the team sergeant. We discussed what had just happened. And the team sergeant, Sergeant Charlie Hopkins, he said, well, listen, he said, in the society in Iraq, young girls, school girls, they're like at the bottom of the totem pole. He said, if they're going to go back and tell people that they see wide-eyed, you know, green-faced monsters with guns in the field out there, there's a high probability nobody will believe them. And so we decided, we come to the determination between me and the team sergeant that our, our hindsight area was compromised, but not necessarily our mission, that we would, could move out of that, move further down this irrigation ditch. There was a wooded area further back that we could get into, and we would be able to move, pick up our mission, and continue on with the mission because as a soldier, that is drilled into us. You know, you got to complete the mission. The mission is always the number one thing in your mind. So with that in mind, we let the children go. We got together and we started lightening up the rucksacks that we had. We taken out excess stuff. We had a lot, a lot of water, five gallons of water each we was carrying. That's 40 pounds of weight right there, you know, that we could get rid of because we had some canteens on our side and there was water in the area. We had pills we could uh, we could decontaminated the water, we could have purified it so we could use it for drinking if we needed to. So we went through all that, we moved, started moving down the ditch, this irrigation ditch, and it wasn't like a straight shot, it wasn't a straight looking ditch, it, it curled, it was like a snake, you know, it moved, and so you, you could come around bends, but it was about chest high. So we stayed down, kept our head down, uh, moved back away from Highway 7, which was off to our west, so we moved to east down this ditch. I figured we'd be able to follow this ditch until we could find an area that we could get to move into safety, get back into an area we could continue the mission. But what happened in the meantime is we're coming down this, this ditch. Well, we run into more people. There's a better one and, and, and a couple of kids with him, and he comes right up on us. And again, for the second time that day, I had to make a decision. Uh, you know, is, is it your life or mine? Do, do I shoot these unarmed people, these unarmed kids, you know, and then and keep moving? Do I just blow by them? Do I let them go? And for the second time that day, I decided, no, we're going to shoot these. We're going to continue to move. And they moved off. And again, these, them and the kids, they moved off when the town. Well, we knew at that time that we were probably in, in serious trouble. Because there was, uh, you could look down on, on the highway, and evidently, when they got back, we looked back at the road. There was there was actually Iraqi soldiers out there. They were stopping traffic coming up down Highway Seven, mustering soldiers, civilians. You know, a lot of them were, were armed. You know, to get out and the longer vehicles, and you know, to prepare for an attack against. They, they, I'm sure they thought we were a down uh, airline crew. 
down this ditch. By this time, we were, had been fully compromised. And we came to an area of the ditch where it, 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 the ditch stopped, and it was an elbow. We just took off back to the south. So there was no more movement. If we come up out of that ditch, we would have been in wide-open territory. Uh, so we set up our defensive perimeter in that elbow, in that ditch, knowing full well that this was probably going to be the end of our lives. But there's no way that eight men are going to stand up to the onslaught that's coming. We had the radio operator get on the radio. And this was prior to us coming back up and, you know, to see in the, uh, the Bedouin uh, to get up and requested. He said, listen, we, we've been compromised. We have troops coming towards us. He requested close air support and he requested emergency exfiltration. At that time, they said, well, the, uh, the, uh, Close air support's about 20 minutes out, and we're going to work on the exit. And we're thinking 20 minutes. You know, we don't we don't have 20 minutes. <laughs> so at that point, we took all our we took our rucksacks off our back. We took all the heavy equipment off us. So we were going to prepare to go into the E mode. This is just prior to that elbow. We took them off. The engineer put a, a C4 explosive charge. We were going to destroy the equipment, the combo equipment. We kept one radio system that we'd be able to use to call in the close air support, talk to the 18th Airborne Corps. Everything else was destroyed, with the exception of that radio. Um, it, was a, it was a LST-5, the SATCOM radio that we kept. And so we pulled that time fuse, it was one minute time fuse, moved on away from it. When we heard the explosion going off, we also heard screams. There were Iraqis around those rucksacks, around that equipment when it went off. Close air support was 20 minutes out. They were less than a minute behind us. This is where, this is where we were at when we set up a defensive position in the elbow of this ditch. But at this point, we had not fired even a shot, but we could see that we had been maneuvered upon. And so my teams informed me, what do we do? Do we fire? Do we fire? And my reply was, hold your fire for a little while. We're going to have to conserve uh, ammunition. And we want to, you know, we want to get them in closer to us where we can be effective in our marksmanship. So, and then just, it was a short time, the first shot came in. And it came from one of the Bedouins that landed. It came into the side of the ditch a few inches from the side of my head. Um, and then they asked, what do we do? They were probably coming in within 400 meters, now getting in a little closer. So I ordered the team to pick out their targets and to fire. We had two, uh, the M203 grenade launchers with us, but the weapons guy had that, and we had about 18 rounds of high explosive 40 millimeter grenade launchers. So we began to use those because these were undisciplined troops. At this time, there were some soldiers amongst them. But as I noticed later, they had on they had on low-quarter shoes. They were like office workers that probably came out of that big headquarters of that air defense artillery unit that was, was nearby. Uh, so they were coming in. They were all clumped together. It, was, it wasn't tactically spread out, so it was a mistake on their part, to, you know, just to assume that we maybe was just a down the crew. Uh, but when the M203 zoomed up and there was groups of four or five and, and they just they just fell by the wayside, my marksmanship, the four of the, the guys were, of the eight guys were school trained snipers. They had their M16s. Uh, they began opening it up and dropping people 
and we're still waiting for close air support to come in and we're in the midst of, of a firefight for our life over outnumbered severely at least 25 to 1. Uh, it was it was a dire situation so as we're returning fire then suddenly we hear the swish uh, of a, a fast moving jet coming across the landscape so close air support was on so i got told the combo guy hey get on the radio see if we you know make contact well we put up this lsd5 radio there is an antenna that's cruising to the top of it that's a go from UHF, DHF, or maybe vice versa. I may have that backwards, but one of them that you talked, uh, you know, hit the mic and talked to the fast movers. And the other one was came bounced off satellites that was good for long distance where we could reach all the way back to that cave. To the horror of the combo guy, Sergeant Gardner, when he pulled out the radio and this, this antenna, sometimes it was, it's a, a short, thick uh, antenna sometimes referred to as a dummy dick, that that had, uh, he had lost it. So we didn't have that. So we had aircraft overhead. We're in the midst of a firefight. And we could not talk to the aircraft because we didn't have the comms. Sergeant Buzz Saldegroff, he carried with him as well as, as uh, Sergeant Terry Harris. They had a, a small, it was kind of like a, you know, a walkie-talkie uh, radio, but it was an Air Force, it's called PRC-9, the Air Force Survival Radio, which is really designed for line of sight. They had air crews carried them so that if they got shot down, they'd be able to make communications. And it also has on it a, a, a mode they call beacon mode, where it sends out a transponder signal that can be picked up to identify your location. So they're asking, hey, will this thing work? We don't know, try it. So Sergeant Golf pulled it up. Our, our call sign was guard. So he's, anybody on this station, this is guard. Anybody on this station, this is guard. And to his astonishment, a voice had came back. And what he'd done, he had gotten a hold of an AWACS aircraft that kind of, kind of directs the traffic and air traffic in and out. And so he got a hold of them. He explained to the AWACS what our situation was so that then the AWACS told the F-16 pilots, hey, you've got to go to the guard net, which is an open, basically an open frequency net that we can talk to them. So finally on the PRC-90 radio, we was able to talk to the air crews and we was able to direct close air support and to keep the bad guys off of our back. The first thing we had to do was let the aircraft know where our position was, because from our position, where you're at is where you cope call close air support you give a, a cardinal direction and distance to you know to drop the munitions that was a chore in itself so yeah we're in it we're, we're in a firefight and uh, you know you try it to uh, to talk to the to the aircraft but uh, not having the signal because we finally got a hold of the AWACS and then we got we was able to talk to the close air support aircraft but they didn't know where we were at, so we had to go through a process of identifying our position on the ground. And uh, eventually, the aircraft was able to find our position via signal mirrors, uh, you know, trying to signal the aircraft. We put out uh, the S-17 panel, which is a real white-colored panel, but they're flying, you know, 20,000 feet. They're staying up above the, the, uh, where the AAA can get to. Uh, 
So once they found out we had to leave in business, we were able to call in close air support. The first strikes we called in were which, whether there were cluster bombs, which are now outlawed, but cluster bombs, we had to call them in danger close within 200 meters of our position because we were getting maneuvered on by Iraqi forces, the Bedouins, anybody that was unarmed, the civilians and stuff, they had done, they had left when the, you know, when the, the initial fighting started. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't only one of those. One of those pilots was a Vietnam pilot, but the other two had never been in combat before. They'd never done cast before, right? Colonel Billy Beal. He was a, he was he was out of South Carolina. He was a, he was a Vietnam pilot. He was the he was the air troop commander on that this first sortie that came in, uh, and that was his, that was his crew. And the guy that actually identified our position on the ground was a young lieutenant that was you know had. This was his first combat missions, but he was the guy that was able to identify our position on the ground. So, you know, the, the, the sights and sounds from the air crew and the sights and sounds from the ground were totally different in trying to get those two, two uh, you know, together. But finally, we was able to do that, bringing in danger close, uh, munitions, cluster bombs, 2,000-pound bombs. So when the bombs started dropping, they started breaking up, you know, the Iraqis. And then... There was, he was, I told you earlier, they were stopping vehicles. They were lining troops up along the road. They had vehicles massed along the road. And that's when the, the, I seen the big military unit come in. It was five, like two and a half ton type trucks that came in, a bus, and a, another, like a cheap vehicle that came in, all full of Iraqi troops lining up on the road. We called in close air support. We dropped cluster bombs. One second there was, there was personnel and there's vehicles lying on this road. And then the next second is nothing but a mangled mess of fire and twisted steel where the F-16s came down and strafed that position with a deadly accurate strike. It was the 40, the 40 KIA from, from your guys' small arms fire, wasn't it? Yes, there was at least 40. But so it that really it was the close air support. We really don't know how many, but it was estimated at around 200. So, so let me just update people. It says some people still coming on. So if you've seen Bravo 2-0, this is uh, another event like Bravo 2-0, except uh, none of Chad's guys got hit, as I understand it. Um, and you actually chose twice to not shoot civilians, multiple civilians. First time, two little girls and a toddler. And then the second time, some more civilians and your other split team sergeants didn't want to do that either. Uh, but you chose to fight. So how much of your Christian, I know you're uh, a godly man and a Christian, how much of your Christian faith came into play there or your moral structure making that split second decision? It was, it was, it was very instrumental, not only for me, but for, you know, we don't fight alone. My guys were, were just as involved. My, my ODA five, two, five, uh, they, them guys were just awesome, and you know, God was with us in that ditch that day. I can tell you that there, there, there had to be no other explanation because, by any other rights, we should have all been dead. We would, you know, we had small arms fire and two hundred threes, where you know we're going against a superior force. Uh, and as the aircraft came in, we found this out later. So is that. There was an armor column that was moving into our location, coming up Highway 7, 
that the F-16s took out on their own accord when they seen that. And we, we didn't know about that until after the fact, until after we got back, you know, from, from this harrowing incident. So the battle goes on. We're dropping 16 sorties, 16. And let me explain a sortie. There are four aircraft in a sortie. So, and there were 16 sorties that flew close air support for us that day, all day long, from the time we were compromised until the evening. And by the, by the time it started getting into the evening, to, due to our expert marksmanship and also the accuracy of F-16s and dropping close air support, you understand, uh, Jeff, that F-16s are not ideal close air support uh, platforms. Right. No, yes. They drop bombs, but they're, you know, they're, they're not known for their accuracy. Right. And these guys, but the guys that flew for us that day, uh, those 16 sorties were dropping bombs. They were they were very accurate, and, I, and from my belief, I think the hand of God was was there as well, directing some of those airstrikes that came in. Did not did not one on one sortie they it came real close, and they uh, one of the pilots thought they did, they got you guys. That's absolutely true. They came in and they uh, they, they they were dropping it. They knew our location. This is one of the and this was amongst the first sorties that came in that, that that bomb was dropped. And so we called it in. It was supposed to, it was, uh, it was about 200 meters from our location. And so they lined up and came in. They, they pulled the lever. You can actually look up from our position in the ditch and you could see the bombs coming in from the aircraft and coming right down, you know, look like they were coming right on top of us. We all buried our heads down into that ditch and, and that thing, the, the cluster bomb hit, I mean, the whole ditch that we're in, it shook like laying on a bowl of jello. That was the, the powerful explosion that went off. That's how close it was, you know, open our mouths and exhaled, you know, because of the pressure that it was going to put on our bodies. Uh, and then, and we were all, and it, it, the, the strike was right on where it should have been. It was, it was approximately up to two sides element that was maneuvering in on us. And that, that, that bomb that came in, that particular one we're talking about, was right on target. And we were so, I mean, we had just expanded so much energy. We, you know, our hearts were racing. We're thinking these bombs are going to come in on top of us. And then we become aware that the F-16 is talking to us. Guard, is anybody there? Guard, is anybody there? And uh, it took a while for Sergeant DeGroff to reply. And his reply came out and he was static. Like good hit, good hit on target, on target. But there was a, there was a delay between that. And later on, I think the, uh, the pilot talked about how his heart jumped up into his throat when there was silence because he felt that he may have took it out of his own troops. Uh, but again, I go back to, to, to faith in God and His guidance on that bomb. As we get into the evening, we had basically driven back the Iraqi forces had really done a lot of damage. There was a lot of dead people out there that day. Big concern at this point was that ditch that I told you that, that snaked up towards us. We dropped close air support right on that ditch that, you know, we came up, but still was unsure. So myself and Sergeant Robbie Gardner, we decided we have to go down that ditch. We got to make sure that ditch is cleared because that's the area that can threaten us the most. We'd be overran quickly if 
element up that ditch and could come right up at us without us seeing them and overrun us. So myself and Sergeant Gardner went down the ditch. We probably went, we went to the, basically went back to the site where we blew up our equipment. We pulled the time fuse because we knew it was going to get into the dark and it was going to get cold. And so we grabbed up some, uh, some of our vortex and stuff, although it was ridden, you know, <laughs> blown up and shrapnel stuff went through it, but it would provide, you know, some, it provides some protection against the, the, the coolness of the night that was going to come on. So on the way down, we ran into a point element. They were hunkered down in the ditch, but we also came across bodies where the close air support had, had dropped below us. And at one point we came down and we came, they came face to face with a point element. And it was like a shootout at the OK Corral. Myself and Robbie Gardner came up. I had an MP5. He had the M16. And we just came up fire and eliminated that point element that was, you know, 20 feet from us. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that was, again, I go back to our faith. And uh, so we moved on by them. We got the equipment. We came back, linked up with, with our team as they're continuing. At this time, the, 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 the uh, the volumes of the fire had dropped down, but there were still people still, you know, trying to move around. But, but due to the expert workmanship, because this was like, once you come out of this ditch, it was like looking across the, the tabletop. It was level ground, so they, they were unable to get any close to us. And then it was probably about dusk getting into the darkness. Things had quieted down, and we got word to the F-16 that we're flying to close aerosol port for us that the, uh, the exfiltration helicopters were on their way in. And so that was good news. And so what we did, it was under the cover of darkness, we moved down to that elbow. And I moved my team further back to the east, and there was some high ground back there, like a, a, another berm that was above the ground. But I moved my team beyond and over top of that berm and got down behind the berm to put some cover between where we planned to bring the helicopter in and where the enemy forces had been coming in earlier. Because we knew from the, from the Vietnam War that one of the tactics they would use is, is that they would leave troops there wounded and wait for the, the helicopter to come in and wait for them to land and step up their attack because it's a bigger target taken out. You know, you take out more people and take out helicopters. So it was very aware of that. But the problem was when they came back, when I got in position, we got work from the uh, the F-16 on our little PRC-90. Hey, the, uh, the helicopter pilot wants to know where your location is. Well, we had been moved and we moved up the ditch. We, our, our GPS system had got destroyed, uh, so we really couldn't give an accurate uh, you know, description of where we were at. So, you know, our morale was getting pretty, feeling pretty high because we were like, hey, we're going to get out of this. You know, helicopters are coming in. They're going to pick us up. And then, and then suddenly it's like, where are you at? Well, I can't give you that information. I don't know where we're at. And then it came to mind that that PRC-90 radio, like I told you earlier, it had a beacon mode. They need to turn it on. And so we asked through the F-16 relaying to the, to the uh, helicopter, can you pick up the beacon? They said, well, maybe turn it on. So we did. We turned on that beacon on that PRC-90. And within a matter of minutes, two Blackhawk helicopters descended, landed right right there beside us on the back side of that ditch. My team scrambled out. We boarded up onto the, the Blackhawk helicopters. The same air crews that brought us in lifted into the 
light sky and carried us out of Iraq and back into Saudi Arabia. And we had been in, we had been in a day-long combat under heavy fire, uh, you know, 16 sorties of F-16s dropping danger close. And we came out and there was not a wound on any of us. And so, you know, we all agreed that the hand of God and God was in, he was in that ditch with us that day. And, uh, so it was it was really a, a miraculous uh, act to be able to get in there and get out of there, not to mention the, the, uh, the fortitude and the bravery uh, and the skills of those men with me, Sergeant Charlie Hopkins, Jimbo Hoverball, Jimmy Weatherford, Robbie Gardner, Terry Harris, Dan Kostrevsky, and Buzzsaw DeGroff. There was eight of us in there. Uh, and I cannot say enough about the team. You know, any anybody that's in business, anybody that works in government, anybody in the military will tell you that you're only as good as the people around you. I, I received, you know, I, I got some recognition because I was the commander, but I can tell you it was not... It was not just me. It was the it was the solid soldiering ability of those guys around me. They never faltered. They never failed. Uh, when it got to the darkest moment, they looked right where they should. They looked to their commander for guidance. Uh, and the team sergeant carried out his duties, you know, by keeping the keeping the morale up of the troops, making sure that they're in their rocking fields of fire. And everything was done according to the doctrine and the training that we did through. And so that, you know, I always say uh, the Savior's secret is the more vulnerable we become, the more invincible he makes us. That rings to mind that you all continually chose to save life, to, you know, de oppressa libera, to liberate the oppressed, uh, not to engage the, the little girls and the toddler and the civilians. And then you even tried to carry on your mission. You didn't even say, hey, we're compromised. We're out of here. You said, let's just move and uh, and then you were in a, a point blank gunfight. Um, I, I remember Fifth Group had the, the majority of the suppressed uh, MP5s back in the day uh, with SOT and everything. If I'm, do I remember that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes. Um, and uh, that is just an incredible uh, story. So how? So today, where we left military gear in Afghanistan. I mean, you, you guys even blew up your rucksacks and destroyed your equipment. And, and, you know, we left an air force in Afghanistan. And also more importantly, and what drives me just uh, out of my mind is we left American children uh, on the ground in Afghanistan. And he, I mean, there's a great difference between uh, you uh, and five, two, five and what uh, our military has devolved into. That has to do, we, you know, in the 5th Special Forces Group, we had great leadership at our company levels. Our, the, 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 our battalion commander, uh, uh, Jerry Thompson, our, our, our group commander up through, we had, we had very good leadership. Nobody was wavering. We had, you know, we had great generals in those days. You know, we just, just seen in the passing of one of, one of the great special operations generals, General Carl Steiner, who's recently passed away at 85 years old uh, in Lafayette, Tennessee. Uh, they don't make generals like that anymore. I knew General Steiner personally, you know, and he, he would stand up for his troops. Uh, General Steiner would have never stood for a president. 
president to tell him, hey, we're going to we're going to go ahead and do this neo operation, not from that evacuation out in the middle of Kabul. Uh, you know, there would have been great pushback from General Carl Steiner. I, I can tell you that personally, as compared to the to the generals that we have today that just bowed over and, and you know let the president go ahead and make this decision, knowing that it was a wrong decision, knowing it was going to cost lives, but you know just buckled under it and, and did what he told them to do. And I also want to emphasize everybody uh, how um, Chad and ODA 525's moral strength about preserving the children, you know, that's the Native American uh, warrior commandment, never harm the children and then everything is born of woman, and how that has uh, devolved um, so much. And um, that's why we are going to win is because uh, of our morals and ethics uh, and today they have no morals and ethics, so they have nothing worth fighting, killing, and dying for. Especially at our senior levels these days, you know. I think I think today's soldiers are just as talented and just as skilled as you know as the guys that I fought with, as the guys that we put you know in the field in Vietnam. But I believe it, it, the difference is the leadership and the decision making. It's the you know the, the, the cover your hind end. Uh, mentality and you know trying to trying to get advanced get, you know advanced to the next grade level and trying to appease your boss rather than standing up and giving your opinion and, and no we're not going to do this is wrong we're not going to we're not going to do an EO operation like this out of a you know out of the center of a, you know of a city that's uh, surrounded by the enemy that was just, you know, that was that was a, a failure of command, is how I would put that. And, uh, it, it was, you know, so there was a lot of people we lost. We lost some uh, Marines and soldiers that day that we should not have lost because of poor planning, poor execution. Uh, you know, leaving all their weapons behind, it was, it was just a disaster. It's a black market. It, it, it is something that is. It stands out as bad as the Desert One incident that we that we performed in Iraq many years ago, trying to uh, you know try to get our diplomats out of the embassy in Tehran. When they, uh, well, they again, that was political too because everybody wanted to have a piece of the pie, and the Marines wanted to plot, uh, fly the TH forty sevens, and they didn't have the night vision time. Exactly, and it ended up being a disaster, and that that is that is equivalent. But Fifth Group uh, distinguished itself again uh, after 9-11 with uh, Triple Nickel and uh, 5-9-5 being the first two teams in, you know, now the famous 12 strong and horse soldiers and uh, really doing the deed in four months. It was it was over. It was done. I call it the Magnificent Special Forces Group. <laughs>
our terrorism force came out of the Fifth Special Forces Group. The Fifth Special Forces Group was loaded with talented soldiers. So for those listening who don't know, Sante Prison Raid was uh, Colonel, the legendary Colonel Bull Simons who did a POW rescue raid. Uh, there weren't any POWs, but they uh, killed tons of NVA. All the Chuck Norris, Sylvester Stone movies are based upon the Sante uh, prison raid. And then Blue Light, for those who don't know, is the predecessor to Delta, now Combat Applications Group, Advanced Force Operations. Uh, you know, and I got to go to the SOT course um, for that as well. And all those assets were internal to the Fifth Special Forces. Yep. Well, and you, you helped stand up 7th, didn't you? Stand up what was it? 7th group? The 5th group, what happened with the 5th group, when, when it was 3rd group, the 5th group moved from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Actually, in 1986, the 1st Battalion, but they, the entire 3rd Battalion of this Special Forces group was left behind, and they constituted the, uh, the new 3rd Special Forces group. So at least one-third of the new 3rd Special Forces group were the soldiers from the 5th group. And then then a little earlier than that was when the 1st Special Forces group stood up at Fort Hills, Washington, and a lot of soldiers got leveraged out of 5th group. So I seen that as probably our higher-up that was a smart move because what they were doing was cross-leveling talent to make sure that, you know, that the groups had, had equal opportunity to drive, had good leadership, and I think it was a sound decision to do that, although it did take away, it took away a lot of, of uh, talent from the fifth group. It spread that talent around special operations, and, and you know, it, it led actually to the groups that we have today that, that took the battlefield in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what do you think about the training of our children and grooming? I'm showing right now. Uh, an LA uh, tranny parade where they're forcing little kids to watch um, trannies uh, and they're showing their private parts and they're giving them dollar bills. And um, I would say this is uh, evil psychological operations uh, and satanic in nature. Any, any comments? I, I, I kind of agree with that. And I think it's, 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 it's uh, also we have moved away from our faith in God you know, I think that, that that has happened in some instances, you know, that we, we become more vulnerable as we as we turn more to these, you know, the, these, uh, um, you know, trying to groom children, trying to, you know, sexualize our youth. Uh, you know, this all goes against the teachings of Christ. And I think that is, you know, that is why we're seeing a lot of these adverse things that's going on in our society today is because of, of you know, uh, lack of faith or no faith at all uh, in God. So now I'm showing um, the uh, Patriot Front uh, in Idaho this weekend. And one of the guys, they look exactly like FBI cadets are almost in the same unit. One of the guys had an FBI megaphone. It said FBI on the side of it. Uh, and it's clearly uh, a false flag operation. Um, and, you know, my point is that even though they're surrounding uh, everyone, uh, they will not win because they have no moral uh, character because they have no, we have no national ethics because we have no moral character. And I think you and 525 illustrate what that is really about uh, totally. So they can, they can false flag and they can uh, try and do everything and they will still not win um, because. They're going to fall short. 
Yeah, that's, well, I'm glad that's, that, that's my point. Well, uh, thank you so much for, um, coming on and, uh, you know, um, I wanted to have you on a while back and something happened and I, but I've told the story over and over and I'm so honored to have had you on and you can tell my, my wife was in tears talking to you and my girls were so impressed. Um, any closing, you know, people are writing there said, is, uh, is there a movie about this? No, this is the, these are the real quiet professionals, not the seals who everybody writes a book. Uh, and then we don't even want to get into Tucker Gar and um, Slabinski and Chapman uh, and that, that whole debacle. But no, this is the, this is the real deal and the real quiet professionals, but anything you want to, I, you know, I just, I think it's, I think it's important Jeff, you know, my father was a World War II veteran. He, he was a, uh, a combat veteran on the, on the battle of uh, 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 Iwo Jima. Um, you know, and he came home from World War II, and he really never talked about what he did in the war. You know, Although he was in the South Pacific, he fought on Iwo Jima. It was things that, uh, it, I think you can attest that a lot of those World War II veterans, even our Vietnam veterans, they don't want to talk about the you know, I wish now that I would impress my father more to find out what he done. And although I, I am reluctant because I don't want this story to be about me, but I want it to, to be a story that's passed down, you know, to future generations that, you know, that moral character matters, that ethics matter, and, and, and particularly in combat, it matters. And even when you're surrounded behind enemy lines, uh, if you have the moral character and the skill set, even though you don't have a full team, uh, you can still win, right? That's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, just keep faith. That's what I'll say. I know the country's going through a hard time right now. I know there's, you know, we're divided. You know, I know there's, there, there's this grooming, this critical race theory stuff, the grooming of children, the sexualization of children. It all goes against the teaching of God. And I think if, if, if we don't put our focus back on God, that, you know, that things are going to continue to decline. That's that's my personal opinion. But do you agree with me that we can win this? I do agree with you, yes. All right. Yes, but it's going to, but it's going to take it's going to take us all to stand up and push back on. It is. I think I think we're doing non-kinetic uh UW uh uh in our own country against our own corrupted government right now in a fifth generation uh war. But uh but anyway, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, and I will keep telling the story because, again, I've told it at least a thousand times to literally 10,000 students from PJs uh, to kids. Uh, and you are you continue to be an, an example. So thank you so much, brother. And uh, it was really cool to have you on uh, Army Birthday and Flag Day. God bless, brother. Thanks so much. All right. right, Bye-bye. Okay. So that was uh, Chad Balwant's uh, Handle Bulldog, um, uh, warrant officer, team leader for uh, Operations Detachment. uh, 
A-Team 525 back in the day in the first Gulf War, telling the Bravo 20 story, except that in Bravo 20, those guys got hit because he made himself and his team chose to be more vulnerable and not shoot one little girl, not little two little girls, not little baby, not little civilians. Uh, they And they wanted to continue the mission. And they, it's just an amazing um, story. So um, <clears throat> I am so honored to know him, just like honored to know uh, Ed Morales. Um, and again, I'm making the comparison to the uh, the um, Patriot Front FBI false flag, which I talked about on Friday. Uh, and then they are arresting the uh, the Academy uh, FBI uh, with his uh, sucked in cheeks, who's carrying an FBI megaphone. It's quite obvious uh, that uh, <laughs> it is them. I had another one someplace where, if I can find it here, uh, it shows the same, last year it shows the same, uh, let's see if I can find it, yeah, here, uh, how clearly this is a uh, false flag uh, op is, let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, maybe I got it there, yep, there we go. Okay, so July, 2021, uh, U-Haul van full of Patriot Front, July, June 2022. It's the, so they are not creative. Uh, they are corrupt. They do not persevere. Uh, they are weak uh, and lazy. They are not skilled. They are not moral. Uh, and they've just got a lot of money. And they look like they are superior. And they are not. There is nothing superior uh, about them. And they do not surround us we actually surround uh, them. So at that park uh, in Coeur d'Alene, there were Christians playing. And the other point about this is that um, this was really two things. I talked about this on Friday, but I'll mention it again. So these are information influence operation and the FBI is running information influence operations, psychological operations in our own country, just like the ATF ran guns to the cartels and then Another international covert gunner operation was Benghazi, then Syria, then Afghanistan, now Ukraine. So they're using these organizations to do illegal activities. Uh, but the uh, concept here uh, is in this instance, you see all these kitted out um, uh, DPS and kitted out PD and kitted out SO and armored up and shin armor and, and forearm armor, but they don't have any long guns on them. Very few long guns. Why? Well, because the the information influence operation of Uvalde was, hey, a bunch of got long cops with long guns can't stop a bad guy with long guns. That was the information influence op. This information influence op is, hey, look, there's white supremacists, but we don't have any long guns. So we're really the good guys. We're talking to you. But as you saw, I showed you uh, the black guy, the guy in the shirt, the white guy in the black shirt standing around, moving around through the crowd talking. That's the guy running the op. It's a covert uh, op. But at the same time, there were Christians praying. There were Catholics saying the rosary. But it was also a dangle, a distraction, uh, because they had a, the tranny show going on there in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, and there were um, trannies uh, that um, flashed their genitals uh, to children. They weren't arrested. And I want to quote Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Cloak, whoever does this, is an abomination. They are abominations. They are perversions. They are evil. And Idaho, by the way, is the center of the American redoubt. The redoubt is a, 
a castle term. It's the tower. It's the last place of retreat. Uh, so while the uh, uh, protest, the Supreme Court was a small movement uh, this weekend in D.C., they're pushing out into the center of the redoubt. Um, understand what they are uh, doing. So the big show was the Patriot Front FBI's, but the real target were our children. And you can see with Chad um, that he protected children he didn't even know. He protected the enemy's children and was willing to sacrifice himself and his team behind enemy lines, whereas these guys uh, are bringing their children to these events uh, and forcing them to watch these terrible uh, things. Uh, uh, and so that is so crucial and important uh, to understand. Uh, under Title 18, Crimes and Punishments, Chapter 15, 18, 1, induce cause or permit a minor child to witness an act of sexual conduct. That's a felony uh, in Idaho. Uh, and the last thing I want to say um, is, well, Thursday's show is pre-recorded. That's going to be Dana Geo Watch. Great show, but it won't be live just to let you know. But um, I've been getting a lot of stuff uh, on uh, Uvalde as a false flag. Uh, and uh, I, as a, a longtime uh, expert in covert operations, in shootings, uh, in tactics, in special operations, Ovalde was not a false flag. Uh, uh, it's very dangerous to uh, say all these things are a false flag because it then says, oh, it's not real. I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back on the couch and eat the popcorn and watch the show. Uh, that's some of the Q movement uh, is like that. That is very dangerous and you can't do that. Those children were murdered and we cannot put up with that. Further, Russian military is moving into Nicaragua, targeting the U.S. biolabs, wait for it, in Nicaragua. There's a BSL-3 veterinary biolab in Nicaragua. And so it does look like Putin and Russia are our allies, not our friends, okay, just like uh, Musk isn't. And Vladimir Bandura, uh, the uh, mayor uh, of Donetsk, switched his allegiance to uh, the next People's Republic, which is the Russians, because, and he also said, hey, the Ukrainians were, um, their Ukrainian Nazis were killing priests and monks, and but he couldn't do that until they liberated it. So uh, that is very uh, important to realize. And also uh, that Musk has decloaked Twitter's fake accounts uh, and so he's doing something very similar to what Trump did uh, using Twitter um, to tell the truth against the fake propaganda. But Musk, Musk is also doing something even better than Trump. He's showing that Twitter is over overinflated itself. So it's overinflated its value. And if Twitter has overinflated itself, then what about Amazon, Microsoft and Apple as well? So this is really good flanking. And again, not our friend, but the enemy of my enemy as my ally. And the last thing I really want to talk about today for sure is that the uh, it just came out back in uh, 2017 that the Associated Press had made a secret deal with the Nazis during World War II. Now, of course, Hitler was Time Magazine's Man of the Year, but they said oh, it wasn't a good guy. He was just the most influential guy. But everybody was in love with Hitler and the Nazis. 
And in 2017, it just came out that the AP, uh, Associated Press, had a deal with the Nazis for uh, photographs. And this, this has taken this long uh, to uh, come out. Um, and they published photos uh, of Hitler the way Hitler wanted to be seen. Uh, like in the Boston Sunday Globe, Hitler was chatting with a blinded soldier. And the caption said, Der Fuhrer is seen chatting with some of his warriors, including the man in black, blinded in combat. Well, that's not uh, showing uh, Hitler killing a little kid or anything. This is going along with it. This is the propaganda press. There is nothing new about this. But the good thing is we are finding out about it a lot sooner than we did. Again, this just came out in 2017. Now their, their time undercover, which is concealment, is greatly reduced, which is why that is so important to what is happening. So um, had a lot more to cover, but uh, need to wrap up here. Uh, there's a secret grand jury in San Diego indicting some Antifa uh, folks. So if I know about it, though, it's not secret because a secret told uh, isn't. Uh, but that is uh, good news uh, because they are realizing they have to meet in secret because they will be intimidated. Uh, but... Fear not. God bless. Keep faith and hold fast. We will win, but we are not always winning. And winning is demanding, difficult, and always expensive. No plan survives first contact. Plans are useless. Planning is invaluable. Develop the situation. Our ranks grow daily, as does our resolve. Tyrants always fall. Tyranny, tyranny inevitably fails. Fear is natural, but is a reaction. Courage is a decision. I will never surrender. I am always hopeful. But my analysis is and will remain ruthlessly truthful. Intelligence prepares the battlefield, nothing more. The battle is joined. The herd is being called. Nobody is coming. We must become our own QRF, quick reaction force. Neighbor up, train up, and train up uh, with Team America. Keep your trusted circle tight. We stand together alone. God has a plan. Us. Freedom is never given. It is fought for earned and taken. So take it.